Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. To another Bitflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is author and filmmaker John Maxwell. Welcome to the show. Hello, Stuart. How are you doing? We're here to talk about your book, Water Street, and we're also here to talk about three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. So let us first delve into your book. And I guess the best place to start, and I should say, it's out now by BK Fiction. Um and if you want to give a brief synopsis as to what Water Street is all about before we get into any details about the writing of it. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely intro, by the way. Uh, yeah, the Water Street is um, a mule kick of a Western, as I like to call it. Um, I, I do argue with some people because they say it's historical fiction, and it is up to a point an historical thriller, um, but it has a lot of Western tropes in it. Um, but it's a... It's a even though it's a fictionalization, it's about something very real that happened in the 1860s. So let's go to 1863. It's the American Civil War. Um, and in Liverpool, what is going on is uh, there's something called the cotton drought, which is caused by, in the eyes of the the nouveau riche in the, in the cotton exchange in Liverpool, they're very, very powerful people. Hmm. Um, they're caused by the union. So there was a blockade of the southern ports. Uh, the Confederate Navy wasn't really anything to talk about. Um, so they weren't really able to stand up to this until uh, against British neutrality, essentially against the law, they started building ships in Camel Laird, uh, sailing them out on the Mersey under a false registration, and then uh, uh, going to break the Union blockade, smash through them, these ironclad vessels. And Water Street really is about... Um, a sort of semi-fictional character called Bannister Dunwoody is based on a real guy called James Dunwoody Bullock who comes to Liverpool with the intention of uh, firstly building more ships and then ultimately drawing Britain into the war on the side of the Confederacy. And, and here's the kicker, um, uh, someone is spying on him and that person who's spying with, on him happens to be his pregnant wife. So you've got... Um, You've got intrigue, you've got noir, you've got uh, a kind of cold noir, cold cold war type noir going on underneath it, and this reflects a lot of the stuff. It's like people are quite surprised about this in a place like Liverpool, but yeah, you know, it was a, it was quite a pivotal 
sort of setting really uh in in the real the real story but also in this um in terms of what was going on um you did have spies on both sides you had consulates on both sides uh so you know there was a sort of secret battle going on uh four thousand miles away from the the theater of war um and uh they took it very very seriously what was the kernel of the idea that set you off on a path to write this sort of fictional account of a historic important historical period in liverpool's history it it was a, it came from a few different angles um and it, to be honest it was for me it was low hanging fruit because uh in the when i, I grew up with a, a painting on my mum and dad's wall okay. um a, a print of an Atkinson grimshaw uh, those beautiful Atkinson Grimshaw, grimshaw uh, paintings anyone listening to this should go and check them out it's, especially filmmakers actually i think you know painting and filmmaking have such a correlation uh and they it kind of he nailed the Liverpool sky, this kind of really kind of purple, purple bluish sort of uh, hue over the city. Um, nice. You still get now, um, uh, and this painting depicted um, the kind of the drag. It's now actually Liverpool one, so all that kind of modernity, all that, that glass and metal that's there now. There was these beautiful shops running up to the customs house on that drag. Uh, Three Graces didn't exist at the time. Hmm. Uh, it was St. George's Dock down there and the landing stage and Water Street were, were the kind of pivotal places in, well, not just in Liverpool history, but actually, Dan, I would argue, and this sounds kind of grandiose, but I, I would argue in world history in terms of trade, there's so many things came off that, you know, the the Irish hunger, the, um, the you know, the do- the surrounding docks, the, hmm. it was kind of how to organise and, uh, and ship. Um, uh, goods, you know, particularly the slave related, slave industry related mm. goods. So, you know, cotton, tobacco, sugar, um, you know, molasses, and so forth. And banking, and massively so, banking and shipping. So, you've got all these kind of industries sort of growing and burgeoning within a probably a square mile around there. And of course, I get to find this out through, you know, looking at this painting and thinking about it and being interested in it and being a being a geek <laughs> and going right i'm gonna go i'm gonna go look into this and i'm gonna find out what you know what's behind this but also having a, having a mother who grew up in dingle um and could tell me stories about going way back about uh you know relating to the great hunger some people call it potato famine i think that's a wrong way of describing yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. but uh but you know going back to that kind of disaster really in the mm. mid mid 19th century so i've always had a curiosity about the mid 19th century i think it was not just in, in terms of you know british or the british empire or ireland um but the united states and how our countries were formed oh without a doubt yeah i mean i think it i think it speaks to how young the globe is as we know it today which we just take for granted you know you think of like around this time You've got countries like Italy are being formed as a, as a, as a, as a nation, Germany, all these places, Austro-Hungary Empire prior mm-hmm. to prior to this period. So suddenly, individual states are being born out of what would have been covered under under regal systems, I guess. Not not real, you know, democracy was breaking out. I suppose is the is the absolutely, way. absolutely. And this is the story of it. And actually, this is this is kind of the, as far as I'm concerned, the gift that keeps on giving because I'm going to. Go a little bit George MacDonald Fraser with uh, with Harry, my central character, and have a kind of growth and being a 20, 22 year old woman 
right the way through into a kind of 60s and 70s in, in my next few books. I've got it planned out because okay. I want to kind of depict this period. It, it really is a kind of such a crucial period. And, and it's sort of, it's interesting for me because it, it just about predates the moving image as well. Mm. Um, you know, and, and how influenced we are and how we judge history through the moving image. You know, it is, you know, photography in that decade in the 1860s went absolutely nuts. The American Civil War was one of the, you know, if you see some of this, the amazing and horrific photography that was taking place during the American Civil War. So, yeah, you know, there, there were quite a few different influences, but I also found out this, this one detail that, just intrigued me and it was the it was the the thing about the um confederate ships of all shapes and sizes smaller gunships mm. going through to you know big bruising fucking <laughs> ironclad you know uh, vessels that could smash through um a kind of union blockade were were being constructed in probably one of the most celebrated and, and richest um, shipbuilders in the world at the time, which was Camel Laird and Birkenhead. Mm. Uh, I found that out and I thought, that is mad. That was just, that blew my mind. Since found out in the writing of the book, so many other things as well. You know, Lincoln was threatening war with Britain over that. Um, that came through. Through his, he, 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 he dispatched one of his top, top um, allies, mm. a guy called Haynes, Haynes Dudley to be the consul in Liverpool and he's uh, you can still see the building still standing they've still got the American Eagle above it um, on Paradise Street there uh, and Haynes Dudley uh, was trying to subvert this action he was trying to subvert it through the courts but also by other means uh, he had his network of spies so you know all of these actions going on and meanwhile you've got the Confederates who are, try who are, who are trying to undo this so I, I'm finding out all this all this all this crazy stuff. It's almost like a kind of Western town is going mm. on. There. And these guys, it, these Americans on, on different sides, American spies are using Liverpool. No, I mean, I mean of, you, you, you write, you know, um, uh, just for the audience's benefit and obviously to make you blush a little, you know, you write beautifully and there's a, it's very vivid. The, the image that you conjure in the, in the reader's mind as, as, and, and as someone, I don't know Liverpool as well as you, but I've been to Liverpool a few times. And one of the first things as I'm beginning to read, it, I'm going, I wish I could, go and walk around Liverpool <laughs> with your book. You know, look at your descriptions, then look at what that place in Liverpool looks like. Because, one, you, you, like you say, it's a real pivotal moment for the world where Liverpool's at the centre of it. That's what I mean That's what I mean by Liverpool history. I don't mean it in a myopic sense, in the sense of it was a... Mm. At that point in history, there was, you know, <laughs> to be between America and <laughs> American Civil... Being on both sides of American Civil War... And it and Liverpool mm. being a pivotal part of that story is is yep. bonkers to a twenty first century audience. The idea that Liverpool, not London, even would be the more important more important link in the chain in terms of what's going to happen out of the USA, and the idea of the mercantiles it seems from your book have almost took power from London because they're making too much money, and who's going to stop them? And there was a sort of, and I think you know, so much, so much of the building of the city at the time is has hung on. Mm. In a, in a sense, you know, I think you've got this kind of this passion and this kind of. Some people have caught, you know, the, the bullshit about victimhood and all that, you know, and, and you know, um, that kind of has hung on for such a long time. But I think, you know, 
so many of the city grew through this influx in the 1840s and the 1850s through the you know the great hunger and this you know massive exodus that mm. went went on from Ireland where it went down from eight million people down to five million people and that's three million people either died or had to get the fuck out and they had no choice absolutely no choice whatsoever um, and and the poorest of the poor where do they go they go to the nearest place that they can and the the cheapest passage you know, in if you wanted to go to America in in modern terms. It would cost you about three grand mm. per head. That's how much it would have cost to get on one of these barks and you know, you know, risk thirty percent chance of dying. On yeah, the basically coffin ships, weren't they? Yeah, you're screwed. You know, you're boned. You, you, you know, you're going to lose a member of your family probably, but or at least one. But what what was happening is, a, a, such a high percentage were coming across in these boats, and and for me, there was this crossover where you've got, if you were to walk around Liverpool in the eighteen sixties. Chances are most of the accents you would hear will be Irish. Yeah. Um, the Scouse accent, as it as it is, probably didn't exist that much. It's sort of like a, a North Wales Irish hybrid, but um, you know, it, it it's just so interesting. I I'm doing a um a, a symposium in the new year with in the old Confederate embassy in Abercrombie Square. Oh which wow. Is, um, it's got like <laughs> it's got like a North Carol a South Carolina flag, I should say, uh in the in the kind of uh, the skylight there, and it's actually uh, I've got evidence from a University of Liverpool historian was telling me the other day that um, Liverpool was going to be intended to be the the main hub if the Confederates had, had actually been more successful. They were going to make Jeez. Liverpool the place in, in in Britain, not London, Liverpool, um, and that's how much the design was. I mean, it was a it was a metropolis at the time. It was, you know, there were people in London who were a bit worried about how, how Liverpool was growing because it was just, it was insane the, the speed the city was growing. Um, yeah, so that there's all of these things are thrown into the pot, Stuart, and uh, yeah, I've, I'm just ever so slightly obsessed with it. And what, it, it, being being sort of feeding on all that information that you're finding out, like you, you've got the stuff you kind of, you kind of grew up with and knew about and then you're, Suddenly, finding out all this interesting background and context to what what essentially is why Liverpool is today, but obviously what Liverpool was then. Um, ha, what was the challenge for you in terms of creating a story out of that and not getting too not getting too bogged down in trying to be his, so historically correct? Well, the greatest gift I ever got for writing a novel was actually, and I'll, I'll say this: some some novelists might blanch at this, but the greatest gift I ever got was um teaching screenwriting which okay. in turn came from producing films and developing scripts and working working in that kind of very rigorous sort of system and I, I would argue screenwriting is probably the most rigorous form of writing in many ways um uh and uh i wrote it as a treatment originally okay uh and it was very rudimentary very simple really what it was kind of just more version of a long synopsis, like a three-pager rather than the treatments in the way. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was always kind of attended to get it out there and get it, try and, you know, make it my, you know, kind of landmark project and all that. Um, but, you know, I tried it in a couple of places. It was, you know, it was underdeveloped. I didn't have time. It, you know, I was too busy making films to, to, to actually get stuck into writing it because it's, you know, in order to do a historical piece, it's not, it's not necessarily... You know, a kind of 
a contemporary thing where you can just kind of draw upon what you know already. You've, you've really got to go in the way and do that research and, and, and dig out all the nuggets that mm. you can. Um, so I left it, shelved it. And then, of course, what happens is uh, I, my wife fell sick. Um, she had um, chemo for oh, wow. so a couple of years. Yeah, she got it was a it was it was tough. Um and that overlapped with COVID. So she was like 20, 2017, looking after her for ages, doing that and teaching at John Moore's as well. So lecture there mm. in screenwriting and, and digital writing. And then and of course uh COVID comes along and it's like boom, and it's like, well, what what are we gonna do? You know, I can I'm not likely to be able to make a film and I hadn't been able to make a film for a long time apart from playing around with bits of animation uh, and I thought well if I carry on doing that I probably will actually fall off the pitch and, and, and start gibbering like a maniac because <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so crazy just how much you're looking at the screen so I better go away and write something and that's what I did uh, I wrote Water Street I, I, I started developing it during the kind of COVID era Hooked up with an agent through a mate of mine, Jeff Young, yeah. a fantastic writer. Um, and he, he sort of advised me to go to the Liverpool Literary Agency and they are doing amazing things. They're the only literary agency outside. Well, they're not the only literary agency outside of London, but they're, they're one of the very few in the north of England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're, they're doing wonderful things. And she just, Claire Coombs there just encouraged me to, to keep going with it. And I did. And eventually we got a book deal and... And here we are, it's moving, which is great. Um, I'm really enjoying it. And just, uh, yeah, learning that as much, learning as much since the publication as the novel as it did in the run-up to it, really, because now it's getting out there. I'm getting all kinds of people coming to me. Brilliant. Um, with different, uh, you know, from the state side as well, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with a voodoo priest who's given me lots of great stuff about New no. Orleans. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's because it's a significant part of the book I know you read it Stuart is, yeah. is this character called Conte who is um, a kind of got of Haitian sort of descent and you know uh, but the two main characters are sort of foundlings within it not too much of a spoiler by saying that yeah um, and they kind of join the Choctaw tribe and it's a sort of entry into them into the story and uh, yeah so I've 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 made this link up with New Orleans, uh, with the Destrehan plantation as well. Who's, who's, uh, this this French guy who was the kind of the master of the plantation. Horrible word, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, during the Civil War, actually travelled to um, to Paris to meet Napoleon III and and begged him to join the war on the Confederate side. Amazing. So you know, a lot of this stuff really happened. We came very very close. You know, the Brit the British were were tempted if it wasn't for the fact that they'd just come off the Crimea and were a little bit battle worn. Yeah. Uh, and did and didn't fancy it, you know. But there were there were there were certainly a few voices there saying, you know, um the Americans have got too big for the boots. Uh so yeah, there was a there was, there was a ask, lot of stuff going on. I'm gonna ask John, what of of all like of all what you perceived going into this and all that you understood, what for you was the most surprising thing you found out in your research of, of this book? Um, there are a few things. I mean, there's a beautiful story. I was actually in Dublin over mm. the weekend 
Right. And this sort of underscored it, and it was it was a, underscored it beautifully. Um, the Choctaw tribe, they were the the kind of tribe in Louisiana along the banks of the Mississippi, and this is very much Mississippi to Mersey. I'm kind of parallel drawing a parallel between those two places. Okay. Um, they 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 were. They were very much part of the Trail of Tears, where they were moved on forcibly. They were they were pushed out of the land. Massive parallel with what was going on in Ireland, you know, mm. just in this style and the way, you know, pretty much criminals were turning up with more rights than them. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, effectively. And then there was it was classic Wild West stuff. The criminals were the ones wearing the badges, you know. Um, so I found this out, and they had this history going back in the twenty years preceding the American Civil War. And in the early, early, well, the late, late, late 1840s, early 1850s, they gave money to the Irish. They actually, <laughs> they raised money and they gave it to the Irish. I did this, I still, I still get a bit choked up even thinking about this. You know, um, these people have been fucked over, mm. not my French, but they, they've been absolutely, you know, uh, you know, in a very short space of time, the lands have been, you know, cut apart. They'd been, um, you know, they were they were being forced out of the, you know, a place that they've been for thousands of years. Mm. Um, you know, by, you know, scumbags essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and they heard about this this famine. That was the what, the so called famine. But they heard about this disaster that was going on thousands of miles away and they uh, they they donated money and I, fa- I found out actually over the weekend this is how these things have been coming to me by some kind of strange quirk of fate that the Irish recently raised 5 million euros um, to to donate to back to them mm. um, you know for their uh, for their grounds in um, in Oklahoma Amazing. So they've, they've transferred that money back. And I just think, and that there's an awful lot of stuff about, you know, the, as I said, the Camel Lake connection and the, the, the ships, the disgraceful thing about the ships being built and the, you know, the the massive support there was in the city. Shamefully, you know, this mm. whole Liverpool Mank thing is quite funny because Manchester was more on the side of the Union, actually. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Liverpool was on the side of the Confederacy, but, and not everyone was, I'll make a point that not everyone in Liverpool was on the side of the Confederacy, but there was a long, like particularly, with you know, in, in the moneyed sort of areas, there was you can't, there was you can't a lot escape of the, you can't escape how much the money would have influenced what people thought, as opposed oh, to understood. It was, <laughs> it, it was dreadful, and, and you know, for me, you know, finding all this stuff out collectively was mm. a way of making sense of who we are now as a city. Mm. You know, and and many of the people who were left behind are the ones who are descending from. You know those who weren't so well off because the money did leave quite quickly, particularly after the Second World War. It was like, right, okay, that's it. There's nothing left. Boom, we're off. Yeah. And yeah. The, you know the pop. The, we've only started recovering as a population in the city in the last ten years. It started to actually climb again. It, up until like 2010 or something like that, the population was going. Yeah, was I mean, it, it, so it's really interesting. Over the last, I mean, this is a sort of a modern take, I suppose, but the last. 30, 40 years of what you would call sort of urbanization that's gone on where cities have become important again, as opposed to everyone, you know, the whole donut theory where everyone just leaves the middle has been the savior for, you know, because it it was where, you know, 
I guess, affordable housing was. I mean, not anymore, but that was the initial pull was that you could go into a city like Liverpool or Manchester and live quite happily. But then now it's... Well, yeah, I've I've got ancestors who lived in the courthouses in Jamaica Street, which is actually near where the Baltic Triangle is now. Yeah. So that's where all these, you know, these, these beards are and these... Uh, <laughs> these kind of you can you can get your plate of chips and a skateboard sort of thing like you know um <laughs> well look john water street is out now from bk fiction um i'll put a link in the show notes where people can get it from and we will now move into three- saving money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big money at Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. The rules are simple for anyone not listened to this before. John has given me three titles. We are going to discuss the three titles, but only five minutes at a time. Your first choice, and I'm going to do it in the order you gave it me, not the order they were released, is 1969's Midnight Cowboy, directed by John Schlesinger, starring John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. What, what is what is the importance of this film to you? Where does it fit in your film memories, John? Well, uh, I wasn't born in 1969. I was born a little bit after that, so I, I can't say. Oh, yeah, I went to see it at the old gritty. <laughs> uh, it was. It wasn't. It. I didn't have the, you know, the first kind of uh, the first wave of that film coming out. But I, I, I strong, films like this, I've I've got a sort of quality that you know I grew up in the 70s. Um, and fortunately, I had the kind of parents who used to let me watch anything. <laughs> um, you know, uh, certification or you know, uh, safeguard and be damned. It was kind of a case of like, yeah, yeah, let him stay up and watch it. He's into it. Let him stay up and watch it. So, you know, and it was before we had a video recorder. So, you know, Midnight Cowboy often did sort of appear on sort of network TV at the time. And I think that was my first experience on it, on a, on a kind of, um, on, on my, uh, my mum and dad's uh, cathode ray. And you think about it, and we, we were talking about this before we, we uh, were doing the podcast here, like um, about what a dark film it is. Yeah. Uh, and I was still 
it was still perfectly fine to, for me to watch it. And I, so my first memory, I probably the very first time I watched it, I was probably about six or seven years old, which might seem like a form of abuse. Really, <laughs> <laughs> a little fellow with curly hair, you know, uh, scarring him with, um, you know, some of the stuff that goes on in that film is. You know, what, what can you remember about how you were computing this as a seven-year-old? Do you, do you remember? Do you remember any visceral reaction to it? Yeah, I think. I think for me, I, I it signifies how much I love westerns, and I, I, I at the same time we'll talk about it later. You know, the kind of search of the only thing, which is a similar sort of background, and that was what it was sold to me on it. Oh, you know, cowboys a western. Mm. I, I'm sure many people would have kind of caught on to that. But it, there was a kind of, I think probably as I got older and watched it again and again, it sort of started to seep in some of the deeper themes in it. Um, you know, I, I'm just seeing this kind of really dark portrayal of New York City um, when, it, when I was watching it as a kid and going, well, that's a scary place to be. And, it, you know, the place is as much a character as the characters are in Indeed. that film. Indeed. Um, you know, it's it's the place and time. It was really kind of New York was absolutely freaking terrifying. You know, I, I went there in nineteen eighty two, um, and it was still terrifying. <laughs> I was only ten in nineteen eighty two. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it was still it still had that kind of that edgy sort of air. But it's one of the best things about it. It's one of the best things about that film. It's 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 the nastiness in it. Mm. And it's not that I'm kind of I'm drawn to it in any kind of weird way, the nasty side of it and the kind of, you know, I didn't really understand when I first saw it as a kid, you know, the whole idea of the gigolo thing and what Joe Buck does and and even the sort of, um, the love relationship between him and, and Ratso, mm. um, that's kind of been played up a lot you know, in recent years and rightly so because that's a massive part of it. But I, I did see this kind of really odd, peculiar friendship between them. And I picked up on that, mm. you know. Um, and it sort of, it just stayed with me, you know. So I don't think I was particularly scarred by it because I, I, I didn't understand a lot of the stuff that was going on as a six-year-old kid watching it late night on ITV. Um, you know, but as I, as I revisited it again and again and again over the years, and I have, you know, and I don't do that with many films because I find it sort of sucks time away from watching something new. And it's like, you know, what's new, what's coming out mm. or reading something new. Uh, I, I, it really is all three films are chosen, the films that I'll revisit because there's something in them mm. yeah, for me, I, that I'll, that a kind of emotional axis that I, that really, it, it just kicks my stomach. It really does. Um, but as I got older with it, as I got older with, um, Midnight Cowboy. I, I did, I did start to pick up on some of these things, you know, and um, uh, you know the, the, the absolute tragedy at the end, mm. um, where he passes away just as they're starting to go towards this kind of this fantasy, really, of Florida and all the, you know, the the the, the bright colours and all that. And Schlesinger is, Schlesinger is John Schlesinger is an absolute genius, you know, the way he portrayed all that. So yeah. Midnight Cowboy, amazing. Indeed. Well, that was perfect five minutes there, sir. Yeah, it's, it's a, a funny film in the sense of, I, I'm trying to picture like watching it as a seven-year-old because you've got, and you can see how easy the kind of, the darker subtext is to it can fly over you because 
like the sex scenes are all are all like lurid and red, aren't they? They're not they're not sexy in any way, are they? It's almost like sex isn't no. taken that seriously for a film about a gigolo. It's it is like I think it is people versus New York City, and then the fantasy of the escape. New York City has et them up and spat them out, and then the escape to Florida in it they're going to then um, and is this is just a fact is like you say a fantasy and uh, a bit in a way there's there's even though it's a it's it's not a road movie I mean it turns into one I guess with the bus journey at the end there's parallels mm. with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot it's just like the idea of mm. pe- people who've been displaced by what I guess is the start of we're not we've not got an American dream anymore there's just going to be this American mm. nightmare and you're all going to fall victim to mm. it because neoliberalism is going to fuck you <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah uh, and that yeah, that was that was what was coming, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a seven-year-old, I appreciate you weren't gonna you weren't gonna read that much into it, but uh, but yeah, I think it. And it, I don't think the filmmaker was making that comment, but you could only read that from what it's portraying of the time. You know, you you've only got what four more years, five more years, then you've got Taxi Driver, which is repeating the same thing. Really, is that we've lost control. We've lost whatever it was we thought we were progressing to. It's going backwards. Well, look, sir, moving swiftly along, but jumping three years back in time to the third and final instalment of the Dollars Trilogy, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, directed by Sergio Leone Mm -hmm. and starring Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef, amongst others. Uh, Do you want to talk us through what I mean? I mean, given you mentioned Western a lot in reference to Water Street, I can see where maybe this might feature, but tell us more. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to be contrary and, and kind of mention the third wheel and that. And it's Eli Wallach, <laughs> I think Eli Wallach is the the sort of uh, the uh, the trickster character to borrow something from Campbell. Um, who I it, that's what again watched this as a as a kid, um, and I was just drawn into him. Like you know. I, I think I'd go into school, come lots of people going, hey, Blondie, you know, all the time. <laughs> it was just it, 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 so drawn to him because what what um, Leone did so well with not just this film, it's sort of like a symbol of many of his films, is he made bad characters good and good characters bad. Hmm. He knew how to, he knew, knew how to, uh, you know, package it convincingly within and have that kind of, you know, it almost in in one sort of movement that kind of change. You know, being able to see it, and I I, I was drawn towards Eli Ward just as a road, just how clever the character is depicted. You know, he could have very easily been a, an awful stereotype. Mm. You know, um, a, a, a little. Uh, I guess uh, I guess Sergio's not speaking. falling foul to that horrible. To to think about you as a screenwriting teacher and, and thinking how people look at screenplays, that horrible note of making someone more likable. Whereas that would have destroyed most of the characters in this that film, wouldn't it? obsessive note, yeah. Yeah, that would, that would have been... And, and, and I suppose in a, a similar way to The Men Like Cowboy, it's a film that just... One of its appeals was it, it wasn't sanitised. It just sort of it laid it out flat flat in front of you. Um, you know, it, there's, a, there's a kind of simple plot and MacGuffin thing going on that's uh, driving the whole thing through. Uh, and it's, it's essentially three of them are kind of... You know, at different times, joining sides with each other and going against each other, mm. um, and it's so skillfully done. And it's just, again, for a kid watching it, and I'm going back to when I was a kid because this is sort of a foundation. I'm 
realizing it more and more of what I what I've been writing particularly recently. Um, you know, where you know, write the good buddy mm. is essentially it. You know, if, uh, I think a lot of films are only as good as the uh, as the villains. Yeah. Um, and if you can do that within one character, you know, if you can if you can have the the yin and yang and the and the um, the uh, you know, which well, probably less so with Levon Cleef. He's just an out and out shit heel. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's even got that sort of like uh, that kind of uh, links type look about him, like you know, uh, which is so sort of iconic in that film. Um, so yeah, I think I think it, it's the way it looks, it's the way he describes the wide open spaces and the sort of the feral nature of it and the and the and you know so much of historically what I'm finding out underpins the growth of America and particularly you know the Wild West as we see it is is that land grab and that uh, that lawlessness. Um it's like a divergence you know, though, isn't it? There's there's this pressure to to set up civil communities. But it doesn't take many mm. people to destroy the civil community and reduce them to insecurity and paranoia, so that you all end up being bad. It's like there's the, there's the obviously a lot of religious people went out and did their nice thing, but then it didn't take they weren't God didn't protect them from all this nefariousness that was going on around them. And and America is such a raw country, even to, you know most of it even to this day. You know it's not been tamed. Mm. The West the West wasn't no. won, as it were. You know, there just was some no. some cities rose and stayed where they were, but us, but but I think that what what Leone gets gets does well is that idea of everyone's living on the wits, really. Nobody who can you trust apart from the person who might have bought your drink five minutes ago, and that's about as far mm. as you can trust them. And you think about it, you've got this Italian master, mm. you know, who shooted it in uh, Spain in the Canary Islands, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Using mainly a kind of Spanish or Italian speaking cast, uh, apart from the, the three three leads, and it shouldn't work. No, none of his films should have worked, and none of his westerns should have worked. You know, it, it, it should have been some kind of really mad pastiche, but it did. But it did. It did and indeed. I would watch it again and again. Watch it in the cinema if you can. I mean. I mean, just to just to dwell on it a second longer, like he he manages to. I mean, I guess because of where it was shot more than, as much as anything else, but he gets the uncomfortableness of never being cool, as in versus hot. Mm. Like his films, mm. you know that everybody stinks of not having washed enough. That <laughs> you know, that the being near <laughs> horses all the time. That you know, you 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 feel that. Smell of- you feel Cheese. it. Cheese. <laughs> you feel it, don't you? He, he really gets. The, 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 he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't dress it. No, nobody's nice. Nobody's nice or like likable, as we said. Um, well, look, moving twenty years back in time now to, and this is a this is a really embarrassing um, admission for me. Is that I've so often just called these films Powell and Pressburger movies that I just never knew. What Pressburg? I mean, Michael Powell's first name, but I never knew Emmerich was Pressburger's first name until today, which is a bit, <laughs> bit of a bit of an admission from me. But you know, yeah, every day's a school day, as it were. Um, but 1943's *The Life and Death of Cl- Colonel Blimp*, where now this is a very obviously a very different tone to the previous two. So where 
Where are you seeing this for the first time and why is it impacting on you? I saw this in what was what was known, what was called at the time the Classic Centre in Crosby. And I'm pleased to say it's actually still going. It's a, it's, um, it is restored beautifully uh, recently. Um, it's what I call the Plaza. It's a community-run cinema. Amazing. Uh, if you're ever in that end of Liverpool, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, opened 1939, I think the week before war broke out, which is a bit, bit crazy. Um, and yeah, they, they again used to were in charge of curating and, and programming their films, you know, as long as I can remember. So, yeah, you could go in there and see Star Wars or whatever, or Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they would show films like this. Um, and, uh, and you know, as a normal thing, really. So, there was kind of constant, constant access as a kid to be able to go and see mm. these these type of films and I, it started I think it was some kind of season because I think I saw A Matter of Life and Death which is another famous yeah. Hal and Pressburger film on the TV again my uh, mum and dad's uh, uh, cathode ray beast <laughs> in the living room is responsible for a lot of stuff but um, uh, I, I went to see it I think it was around I, was, I think it was a bit older I think it was about 1983 84 uh, in the what was called the classic at the time. And for me, it was just a spectacle. It wasn't, you know, any kind of chin stroking, you know, pretentiousness yeah. as I saw it. It was just, it was just that, you know, I, I loved the matter of life and death and I knew there was, there was a connection that was the same, same people um, behind it. And uh, I hadn't quite got around to black narcissus or red shoes at mm. that time. But um, so, you know, rainy, rainy Saturday afternoon, Went down there with the mate, uh, and we sat in there. I wasn't expecting much, um, and it was just—it was like, "What? This is a color film and made during the war." It was—it was just—it was just electric. It was just—it was just beautiful, um, and you know, again, it's a similar thing to. To, to very much the midnight cowboy, I suppose that I I probably didn't understand all the nuances, but it was I was taken on this kind of journey through time, hmm. really, and that's what it is. It kind of it goes from the Boer War all the way through to um, the Second World War, which is a fundamental period of history, um, and uh, it's about friendship as well, much hmm. as you know Joe Buck and Rizzo about friendship. Uh, the you know Candy and Theo. Um, and the Deborah Kerr characters, characters, you know, as well, you know, very much about friendship and, and you know, against really, really, you know, troubled times mm. um, and the survival of friendship. And I think that's probably what I always latched onto. So it's another film that I was exposed to quite early when I was young. Um, and it, I'm so grateful that I was because it sort of stuck in my memory. And, you know, I've just, you know, I still revisit it. I still go back to it. Um, I'll still even show clips of it to people, you know, to students who will want to see like the next um, Jordan Peele or something like that. Like, and I'll go, right, well, you know, hang on, that's great. But have a look at this, you know, um, just because it, it is timeless. Mm. It's, it's, um, it's a beautiful story of friendship. Um, I'm, I am still flabbergasted to this day how it never got, uh, hit by the censors i was going to say what do you think i'm going to say made during the war and it's a literally it's literally about wars yeah. 
What I mean, what's well, it? Forty three. Yeah. So what's it? Yeah, say, what's it, it saying? It's 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 betraying a good German. <laughs> now you know Spielberg might be able to do that in Schindler's List. You know, so many years after the fact, and it's all like you know, you know, we're all we're all friends now, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and don't get me wrong, in the sense that added brave elements as well. But you know, this is this is right in the middle of it. Mm. This is all the shit going on, and it, and they they shot it beautifully. Jack Carter's cinematography is are utterly stunning you know it's just you know the the use of very very new techniques of color mm. um it, it 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 was just you know it just takes you there um all the way through and i, I suppose um you look at you look at uh you, you look at that portrayal of friendship is it that's what really draws me through but you you, you you almost don't notice the the, the stuff like the, the colours and the cinematography. It's just out of this world. I've got to ask you, now you've told us about the film, uh, just to, I know the, the alarm's gone off for five minutes, but so what's the cinema like now then? This this place in the, the plaza, you said it's called now. So what 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 kind of what kind of venue is it? Well, uh, not by Mersha that, but by a few people, they unkindly called it the, the flea pit, hmm. which I believe was a generic term for a place that was a bit of a dump. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it did. You know, they really, they, they, I don't know how the hell they kept it going, like these volunteers, but they, they, they deserve a bloody medal too, honestly. Outer passion involved in keeping a place like that going. Um, but since they got a, a, a grant hmm. uh, and restored it, it is a fantastic place to go and watch a film. I mean, it's just, it just feel it's a different feel to going into a multiplex or, you know, hmm. and I know there's this, there's this trend in multiplexes, like, you know, for, you know, sofas and lovely comfy chairs and all that and, you know, Dolby Surround and bloody, bloody, blah, 4K. And they've got all that there. They've got all the, you know, the kind of wow projection, digital projection. All of that is in there now. It's installed. But it's just the surroundings of it. There's there's nothing to match the collective experience of watching a film, you know, mm. with other people in an environment like that. Um, so, yeah, uh, thankfully... You know, and I, here's my little advert to Crosby Plaza, Plaza Cinema mm. on Liverpool Road in Crosby. If you're ever in Liverpool or if you're from Liverpool, do pay it a visit. And it is cheap to go and watch a film. I'm talking four quid. I will put a link in the show notes. I think it's an important thing. This is one of the things, you know, old video shops and old cinemas is certainly something I love to hear about in terms of this this section of the podcast. But if this if a cinema is still going to this day, then it always deserves a shout out. That's right. Thank you. Well, look, we've come to the end of your three films that have impacted everything in adult life. And thank you for sharing with us uh, the writing of Water Street. Congratulations on that. I, Like I say, I will oh, put thank links Thank you for having in. me, mate. My pleasure, my pleasure. And it just gives me... In fact, before I do say goodbye, let me take, adv- let me take advantage of you as a screenwriting lecturer or teacher, whichever way you want to put it. What would be... What's one bit of key advice that you like your students to go away with in those first couple of weeks when you're trying to get them to get their head around what screenwriting is? Don't get too hung up on structure. Don't, 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 don't. Free your mind. Free your mind. Go for it. If it's a load of bullshit, it doesn't matter. You know, you just need to get it down because then then the magic starts to happen. The research starts to happen. You know, you can do research at any stage in writing a screenplay, but the most important thing at the beginning is get the passion. You know, 
because if you haven't got the passion, it'll show straight mm. away. It'll be it'll, it'll be fake. So, you know, get passionate. All the clever stuff, all the kind of, you know, the the micromanaging, the layering, give it a longer piece or whatever that comes later. But really, you know, don't worry about make. Uh, to, to paraphrase, uh, talking about stop making sense. <laughs> well, there's a there's a screenwriting <laughs> podcast called the, the Screenwriting Life, and what you've just described, they talk about it as just jump in the lava. That's how they describe it. It's like, don't be afraid of jumping in. Not knowing what you're going to write and what, how it's going to turn out is not a bad thing if you've got this kernel of an idea that you must you you, you want to get down. And it's about discovering it when you're in the lava. You know, not you won't discover it by thinking mm. about it. You have to you have to put something down on paper, or else it is just an it's just a thought. Well, I'm glad you did that, and I'm I'm sorry to have just thrown that at you. But I think that's some good advice there. <laughs> uh, so it does give me just to say thank you very much for joining us on the Britflix podcast. Thank you, Stuart. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something wrong before. 